As today's technology blows away the sands of time, we are digging deeper into the secrets of these mysteries. Welcome to the PowerShell Podcast, the podcast for PowerShell and the PowerShell community. Far more powerful than all the others. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm Ultra Superstar Jordan with the best looking co-host in the business, Andrew Plaw. Wow, thank you so much. Best looking guy. We got more audio <laughs> listeners than video, but thank you, thank you. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows who Andrew is. Uh, so at the end of Summit, we did catch a lot of uh, interviews, but there was one interview that I think all parties decided that we were too exhausted by the end, so we decided to uh, loop back around. Yeah, yeah. Summit was amazing. Such a great event. Um, before we get to that, though, Jordan, you know, last week, my birthday, it was amazing. Thanks for all the kind and warm wishes, everyone. It meant a lot to me um, and means a lot to me. But Jordan, it is your birthday episode, my friend. And you know what? We brought some of Microsoft's finest to celebrate with you, my man. Happy birthday. Can't think of a better way to spend my 93rd. <laughs> but yeah, you were mentioning the Docathon on the last day of PowerShell Summit was run by these fine gentlemen right here. And what was the Docathon? Um, I guess that's for us. <laughs> well, I, I guess before before too far, we have with a Sean Wheeler, Mike Robbins, and Mikey Lombardi, the 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 who's who of PowerShell documentation. Is that is that a fair assessment? That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the Docathon was um, uh, an attempt to get community involvement with community contributions to help improve a set of documentation. And um, we went through the process of um, uh, how you contribute to docs and, um, you know, what our sort of our editorial style and standards are and uh, really focused on um, uh, some cleanup work in the Windows PowerShell docs, uh, which is an area that's been long neglected because there's there's no owner. It's not part of the portfolio that uh, Mike or Mikey or I uh, manage. So um, we help out there um, as much as we can, but uh, it's not part of our day job. And so the goal there was to, you know, clean up um, the content uh, as much as possible. And um, I would say it was a real success. We had uh, a lot of people in the room to hear the message uh, initially, around 63 people, I think. Um, of that, we had 19 people um, submit PRs, and um, 62 PRs was the final count through the uh, weekend. So on Monday, we started um, uh, reviewing the PRs and, and getting them merged. And ultimately, we improved uh, 204 documents. So huge success. Uh, super happy. And uh, it seemed like people were having fun and were excited about uh, contributing in the future. And hopefully, we'll get some more of that. Awesome. So yeah. This replaced iron scripter this year is this something where it's 
going to be like the new thing going forward? Do you think they're going to find a way to get both Iron Scripter and Dockathon in for future summits? Uh, that's uh, a good question. And I think that's more a question for James Petty, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I heard him say that um, he's put uh, uh, Iron Scripter on hold for a couple of years and may come back to it. Um, it, it depends, I think, on uh, Jeff Hicks, if he wants to continue to run it. it he, he puts in a lot of effort into that event. Um, so for the, for the Docathon, did you have mm -hmm. to go through teaching people the basics of kind of GitHub and Git? Was that the first part, or how did people go about handling that? Uh, we covered that briefly. Um, and we had uh, a session earlier in the day, uh, Mike and I, where we went through the whole process and talked about Git and GitHub and what the uh, workflow is there. But, um, you know, I, I had put stuff out in the um, the Slack channel for the summit for the Docathon uh, with some sort of prerequisites, you know, the, the things you need to have and the tools you need to install. Um, and things like that. And so it was kind of the assumption that people were at least familiar with Git and the GitHub process. Um, but we were also there in the room uh, at, with a few others to help people through that process. I saw some people learn in that. And that's one of my favorite things about docs and whenever we tell people to contribute to docs and that kind of thing is it's a really great first opportunity to familiarize yourself with pull requests, GitHub, Git, a lot of things that for me for a while were kind of confusing until you kind of go through and decode what all these different words mean that sound similar but mean different things. It's it's a good good experience to go through. If I could, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned contributing. I, I saw that there might be a new article on contributing with code spaces. Can you expound? Yeah, Mikey, you wanna talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a while back, we'd started using Vail and a bunch of other tools locally uh, to make authoring easier on ourselves. And then when we wanted to make authoring and editing easier for external contributors, realized that this list of things that you needed to know and have set up to contribute to docs with you know all the, the bells and whistles, just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And um, I don't know about you, but when I'm contributing to a project, if the get set up to contribute steps are more than like three steps long, my brain shuts off uh, and I can't. Um, yep. And so I just wanted to smooth that out for other people. So started by defining a local dev container and then using that myself for a little while uh, and followed that up by uh, seeing what it would take to define uh, GitHub code spaces, which are uh, built on dev containers. <clears throat> so to take a brief aside on, on how GitHub code spaces work, um, at GitHub's annual conference this year, they announced that they were going to take their code spaces and then make them free for, I think, up to 60 hours a month if you're using the lowest amount of resources. Um, and so I was like, that's really nice because it's coming out of beta. There's, I cannot imagine anybody contributing to docs for more than 60 hours a week. That seems like 
a lot. I don't contribute to docs for more than, than or sorry, for 60 hours a month. I contribute to docs only like twice that much in a month, uh, and that's my job. So outside contributors doing that, I figured they wouldn't hit the limit, which made it uh, interesting. So what is a code space? Um, if you've ever been on uh, GitHub and used the web editor experience, which you can do if you go to any repository on GitHub and hit the period key on your keyboard, it'll reopen that page in the web editor, which is uh, a hosted uh, web interface for VS Code. Um, but there are some limitations with that, largely around what sort of software and extensions will run, because it's just running as a web service, right? So if the extensions or tools can't run uh, as node packages, they can't, if they're not designed that way, then they won't work, which meant you couldn't use Veil. Veil is uh, a command line app, so there was no way to do that. So that would require having some sort of machine behind it. What GitHub Codespaces does is takes the web editor a step further and actually spins up a container uh, that GitHub runs that you can define to have any software and settings and whatever you want pre-installed on it. So now from your perspective, you go and uh, you go into GitHub and you open up the web editor and you say, actually, I want to be in a code space. Uh, there's a shortcut command for that. Uh, and then it spins up a container on the back end, does all the pre-build configuration stuff for you. And now your editing contributing experience is the same as the one that I have on my workstation. Uh, but you don't have to know anything about all that stuff. Everything just lights up for you. So what that means in practice for our contributors is now when you're authoring uh, your contribution, you automatically get hints about uh, issues with your pros, that things that Sean and I and, and Mike will have to uh, tell you in your review, except you see it while you're writing. Every time you hit save, it says, hey, uh, you need to use contractions and you're not, or um, you can't use terminology like this, or you're using the wrong syntax for links and lists and whatever. Um, so it can do all those things. Uh, and it just provides a much easier, lower friction because you don't need VS Code locally or any of those types of things. You could just hit a URL and then you're ready to contribute. So our goal was to lower that friction, and I think that accomplishes it. Yeah, and that was one of the learnings from the um, Hackadoc session. Um, a lot of time at the beginning was spent helping people set up the tools on their own laptops. Um, and if we had had the code spaces set up, then we could just tell them connect to the code space, and you can you can do that connection to the code space in your local copy of VS Code, or as Mikey was saying, you could do it in the web interface of GitHub. That is super cool. And so on the low end, if you're really new to this whole GitHub thing, I think Mikey highlighted something that blew my mind the first time I saw it, which was press period on a repository and it opens up a web editor, which is wild and super cool that we're in this day and age with these tools but you took it a step further and because there are some limitations with that you connected it kind of sort of to uh something that runs in github that gives you everything you need so you can have the exact same experience um whether you're you or me or whoever right and you don't need to know about 
what we've configured in there, it just lights up for you. So you don't have to read documentation about how to use Veil or whatever. You just get that feedback automatically. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? Do we apply these principles to a bunch of other things, right? Why don't we apply them to the way we contribute to documentation or contribute to uh, projects in general? What do you call that experience? Like user experience, developer experience? What do you think of? I tend to think of it as developer experience. Part of that is because that was the last job I had before I moved into docs. Uh, and it put a worm in my brain that is just constantly screaming. Uh, you know, how could we make this better? How could we make this smoother? Um, I guess you could also call it maybe contributor experience because it's not just around writing code. Uh, these types of improvements that we're investing in and we're seeing people invest in sort of across the industry now are around, you know, I want to make a, a quick and helpful fix to a typo in documentation. Why do I need to figure out how to clone your repository, set up an editor, load your tools to fix a two-word typo? You shouldn't have to. It should be easier than that. Yep. And it's better if it is easier because we can use that time and energy for other things because there's a lot of hard things that we have to do every day. So let's maybe make it easier. And maybe we'll click on less phishing links too while we're at it. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's funny. I've always a thought I've had with business in general for a long time, which is always why do you make it difficult to take my money? This is just uh, the next level of that principle is why do you make it difficult to contribute to, to help out? It's removing barriers is a fantastic uh, endeavor. I think it's kind of like, that's what a manager does is right. They try and remove barriers. That's what a good manager kind of does. But I think that in any opportunity, if someone who is responsible for a system can remove barriers to entry, it's just a universally good thing. So cool. Yeah, I, I think about it a lot in terms of friction, right? Uh, when I want to do something, there's a certain amount of friction that I'm willing to fight and get through to do that thing. And once I hit too much of that friction, when it's too hard to walk up that slope, right? I just walk away. I like, okay, well, I'm not getting to the top today. Uh, maybe somebody else will. Um, and what I find is that people will often leave and not come back when they hit a friction point like that. Um, we experienced that back when I was at Puppet. We experienced that with Docs today, um, with tons and tons of uh, different situations. And I think it's particularly important to focus on these types of contributor things for open source projects. If it's closed source and it's just your team, you can mandate that your team follows practices, right? There's, there's some level of... Uh, peer accountability, team accountability that's in place that you can like say, no, you have to follow these steps. External people can just walk away at any time. Like you're getting a gift from them when somebody contributes to an open source project, whether that's uh, a docs contribution or an issue contribution, or if it's a code contribution, whatever. Um, those are gifts and making it hard for people to give you gifts seems pretty silly on its face. Uh, Agreed. There's the other side. If you hit the point where they're that frustrated, they're also not going to leave a note on their way out. I tried. This was yeah. too difficult. They're just going to disappear, and you're not going to even get the feedback on there was an issue. So, 100%. But if you want to get started with contributing using um, GitHub Code Spaces to PowerShell Docs, there's a fantastic blog. It'll be in our show notes. Check it out. It goes through everything you need to know.
Mike Robbins, how you doing, man? Long time no see. Doing well. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Last time we had you on as a guest, you talked about the Azure predictor in PowerShell, which I'll be honest, it didn't well me in the moment, but I got to see it in action a lot more at Summit. You were trying to get me ahead of the game on something spectacular. So I just want to say I, I apologize. I didn't uh, give that the full weight because I got to see what that predictor does, especially with the new updates with uh, PS Readline. Man, that is something everyone should be looking into. Predictors are amazing. Yeah, definitely. And we have a doc on that. I can provide a link for it. But uh, predictor is it's actually, you install it via a PowerShell module. It's the az.tools.com predictor module and it does require PowerShell 7 and also a specific version of PS Readline. So if you're still if you're still one of the people that are stuck on Windows PowerShell, you're using like the ISC instead of VS Code, then you're not going to be able to take take advantage of this awesome functionality. Yeah, and I guess I guess a quick breakdown of for those it's it's almost like an AI version that's specific for those commandlets for the Azure commandlets because the Azure commandlet is there's so many. So having something that's like you start typing in is like where you're most likely looking for something in this range, where it doesn't, especially where you don't have a history, you're helping it fill out the command you're looking for is it's a big time saver. Definitely because with the uh, with the AZ PowerShell modules, there's over six thousand commands, and if you install AZ Preview, which includes all the GA and Preview modules, we have over 150 modules. Wow. I can't even count that high. So, <laughs> so there, you, uh, Mike, you mentioned that there is a blog that people can check out if they want to get set up, but this sounds kind of like a necessary thing if you're working in Azure every day. Like, I just imagine the ROI you're going to get from having this is pretty high. And in general, lately, we've been really encouraging people to take advantage, reduce friction in your console when you can. Right, install things like this. Get make sure PS Readline is installed with the latest version. Take advantage of some of the awesome functionality there. Yeah, but, one thing with um, so I mentioned PowerShell seven and and a certain version of the PS Readline. One thing to keep in mind is you don't have to go out to all your servers and everything and update those to PowerShell seven. Although that would be great too, but you can load just PowerShell seven and these tools on your development workstation and take advantage when you're developing your scripts and functions and different things where you're going to be automating uh, resources in Azure. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like a entire system or environment install. It's a, it's a local install because you're using it to help you build the script. The script is going to run when you send it over, it's going to be the full commandlet. So it, it really doesn't take much. It's uh, just a couple of lines of code. I think I'm going to, which I don't talk ahead, but you basically the newest version of PS Readline, install the connector. And I think they even changed PS Readline by default to look for connectors. So you don't even have to point it and say, use this as a predictor. Or it's the selection source. I think yeah, there's one an thing enable AZ predictor uh, command also. So one thing I'll say, if you want to, if you want to see what all this is about without having to install anything, we actually have this enabled by default in cloud shell now. So you can hop in cloud shell and take a look at at what uh, AZ Predictor looks like. Nice Cloud Shell is seems like it's improved quite a bit over the years. It sounds like more and more people are starting to use it. You ever uh, play around with that, Mike? 
Yeah, so if you, uh, and you can just go to shell.azure.com and that'll put you directly in Cloud Shell. And of course, you can run the Azure CLI or Azure PowerShell from there. The other neat thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is you can actually run, run Cloud Shell from Windows Terminal. So you can have it as a tab in Windows Terminal and it looks and feels like a local shell. But that way you don't have to install the AZ PowerShell module and worry about keeping it up to date because we keep the version that's installed in Cloud Shell up to date automatically. Nice. I imagine a lot of people who are Azure admins are probably rocking that because you have access to all your modules and you're already connected to all your sessions, right, in Cloud Shell? That's right. Makes, so, yeah. so you're already authenticated. There's no reason to run like Connect AZ account unless you want to change the subscription or the tenant that you're logged into. Right. And I was just checking out the learn page for Azure PowerShell. And there's some cool stuff on there. Um, looks like there's a training on automating Azure tasks from PowerShell. Yeah, so if you want to get to the main docs, and there'll be a link in the show notes, but it's real easy. It's uh, aka.ms slash azps, and that'll get you to the primary page for the install docs, the configuration, the AZ predictor, the uh, all the documentation for the reference commands, and I'm the docs writer for all of those. So we have several versions. So there's like, like I said, so there's over 6,000 docs for the reference commands, and we we maintain three versions. So we support the current major version, which is currently 9.7.1, and then also the previous major version, which I believe is 8.3.0. Uh, and when 10, version 10 comes out, we'll drop support for version 8. So customers need to upgrade at least once a year to stay in a supported configuration. Good to know. Now, we're mentioning some usability stuff, making Azure more usable, predictions, Cloud Shell. Uh, there's a really cool Learn Microsoft article I was checking out, the Optimizing Your Shell Experience. Any of you responsible for that one? Yeah, that's a, actually a whole collection of articles um, I put together. It's part of the main PowerShell docs um, because we've, it, we had done a, a good job with reference documentation about commandlets and, and how to use commandlets, but there was really very little documentation about how to use the shell itself. Um, you know, what, what your experience is in the terminal and uh, all of that. And, you know, PS Readline is great. And we have uh, documentation on the PS Readline commandlets and uh, APIs that it uh, exposes. But uh, there was no real user documentation for that. So, um, yeah, this, uh, this is um, some... Fairly recent documentation. We're we're looking to expand it even more. Um, you know, showing people how to use the shell and get the most out of it. Yeah, uh, reading through this massively helpful stuff here. Stuff that I think if you go about PowerShell, maybe a more traditional method of just kind of running commands and going about things and discovering it. Oh, you see this random thing on the internet here and there. You're going to be missing out on a lot of the stuff that you cover here and quick. I mean, things like running commands in the shell, running native commands, passing arguments. These are things that can occasionally get people hung up and uh, can increase friction. And I highly recommend if you're listening to this and you're not 
a million percent comfortable with your workflow and how you have everything set up and how you're using PowerShell, check this out. Um, there's a lot of great stuff in here, especially when it comes to PS3 line key handlers. That's a very, very, um, to me, a sign of like, oh, you're really trying to customize your console experience if you're working with key handlers and, and going that route. Yeah, and people don't realize what's, you know, what what key handlers are turned on automatically. Um, it, you know, there's there's a lot of cool features that that people just aren't using. I think the the one that surprises people the most is the Alt A that allows you to, um, uh, you know, you can pull up a command from your history and um, edit it quickly by changing parameter values and alt a will will toggle between all of the parameter values on the command line um uh you know selecting the value so you can just type over it and uh enter a new value there that's a real time saver i use it all the time you know i'm, I'm forever uh, committing things to Git and submit, submitting PRs from the command line and such, and uh, but the the parameters that I use um, are slightly the command's the same, but the the parameter values are different. So I can just pull up my history, hit Alt A, and make the change. Yeah, one thing with the key handlers, um, so PowerShell and Azure PowerShell both are cross-platform, so they run on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, and the key handlers are not all that you that you'll see in Windows are not always defined in Linux or Mac OS. So I define some of those in my profile so I get the same experience when I'm using different operating systems. Yeah, one of the things we added to uh, the key handlers article here was um, how to enable the alt key on Mac OS for the, the, the two popular terminals. Because Mac treats the alt key differently um, than Windows and Linux systems do. What did you say that was? Um, it's in the using PS key, uh, PS okay. Readline key handlers article, uh, but there's there's a section there that covers Mac OS and and turning on the uh, the Alt key. Wow, so helpful! Imagine running into that just like randomly and not having any documentation. Um, very awesome to see these articles. I didn't actually see that you went to that level of detail helping people on different platforms because. I mean, it is a cross-platform language, so it makes sense, but appreciate that there's uh, that thought and care that went into it, so sweet. All the way down to configuring iTerm, too. Yeah. Yeah, the Terminal is the one that's built into macOS, and iTerm 2 is the probably the, the other most popular terminal that people use, and it's the one that the uh, PowerShell team, dev team, uses most, so... Uh, they're they're willing to support it, but there's uh, there's you know dozens of different terminals, so your mileage may vary. And if you want, you mentioned looking at the you know key handlers that are already configured, and you talked about Alte. But if you wanted to check this, you can run git ps readline key handler. Um, and I have a question about that Alt A one because I had a friend who was super into Linux, and I for some reason in my head. I have Alt A to select a parameter or something like that. Is did, was this borrowed from a Linux thing? Do you know the Alt A? I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of the PS Readline features um, were borrowed. The ideas were borrowed from Fish 
the fish shell and and other shells like that. So it could have been. Gotcha. I might be wrong. I just feel like alter for some reason that's in my head. <laughs> um, but not to put anyone on the spot, does anyone else other than Alte have any interesting PS Readline key handlers that they enjoy? Oh, Mike Robbins just shared his profile. Um, I'll have a look <laughs> yeah. at that. So, uh, so one thing I said, I set the prediction predictor source to history and plug in, but also the F2 to switch from a uh, from the to the list view to the tab view. It's not in there by default on Linux, so I defined that one. And then uh, I've got a few others that uh, in my profile that I defined. The the one that uh, I like is uh, remapping the enter key to. Um, oh, where is Val- it? Validate and accept. Input. Yes, uh, validate and accept input. Um, so, um, by default, it's mapped to accept input. Um, but what validate and accept input does is it validates what you've typed. Uh, and if there's an error, it'll tell you the error before it actually tries to run it. So you don't get a runtime error. You have a chance to edit the command and fix it before wow. you hit enter again. So uh, it'll validate before it goes. That's pretty cool. Right. And uh, it also means that uh, a typo that you made doesn't end up in your history. So uh, it keeps your history cleaner. Wow. Oh, hold on while I add that. <laughs> I, I like that a lot because uh, more, more and more I end up on the, the webcast showcasing PowerShell and I've got a lot of bad commands in there that are starting to pop up for me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's like, this is going to be a game changer for me. I appreciate the tip. Yeah, there's so much stuff. I use PS Readline somewhat heavily. I'm not like a super advanced user, but I have some customized key cords and stuff like that. But I feel like I need to just dedicate some time and really go through and like learn what's already there and actually like digest what the words say that it does. Maybe use it a couple times. Jordan, this sounds like kind of an interesting thing if we were to do like a class or like a little interactive lunch and learn on this because there's a, a lot here. It'd be a great little webcast for you. Yeah, we did a, a lunch and learn a, a week ago or a couple two weeks, weeks ago, ago, two weeks ago, that uh, one of the main takeaways from this was very beginner was they noticed the PS read line within the Windows terminal when Andrew was showcasing. So they weren't sure what it was. They just saw a lot of added value that they didn't see on their side. So we got a quick discussion there. Yeah, quick win. All we have to do is <laughs> tell people who've never seen it before, install module PS Reline, and boom, we're, we're heroes now. <laughs> um, uh, one other thing that I'll plug while we're here talking about your profile. Um, uh, I created a module called PS Style. You know, So PS Style is the new feature in... PowerShell 7.2 and above that does all of the ANSI color decorations uh, and all that. Um, But it doesn't exist on earlier versions of PowerShell. And so if you're using PS style in your, uh, for example, in your profile script uh, to to set color definitions and and things like that, like for your prompt or whatever, um, that won't work on Windows PowerShell 5.1. Well, I created this module called PS Style. It's in the gallery that that gives you the PS Style um, variable. 
and um, that's that's configured the same way as as it is by default in in PowerShell seven two. Okay, just above. just because I'm slightly confused or I was for a minute. PS style refers to the variable that's in PowerShell seven dollars yes. on PS style, and dollar. you made a module that makes that same variable available in previous versions where it doesn't exist. Right. So okay. you can load that in your. Um, you can code your profile to check to see if you're running on PowerShell 5.1, load the PS style module, and then all of your PS style, dollar PS style uh, usage will work. Um, nice. So, you know, it, it you won't have all the same features that PowerShell 7.2 has um, with the, the colorized tables and, and other output because that's, Built into the engine, but the the color definitions and the way it does um, ANSI color strings, uh, you can use that syntax uh, in your script. So you can have one profile script that works across to all versions. That's very cool. Was that a challenging module to write? No, nah, not really. Um, the hardest part was just uh, like I created it as a, a class. Um, and just defining all the members of the class, you know, copying all the information from the existing dollar uh, PS style variable. Nice. Um, and so it loads uh, the class and instantiates uh, an instance of dollar PS style. Nice. There's there's cool. actually no commandlets. It's all it does is load the class. <laughs> I see that, yeah. PS style, PS style new. Uh, I'm looking at the code. That's cool. So, yeah, I guess if you're really ready to take your customization to the next level, you can check out the PS style variable and start tweaking some colors to maybe uh, further customize them to your liking. Uh, I'm curious how customized you all have gone with your PS styles. Not a whole lot, uh, but this becomes more important if you're using. Um, like light-colored themes in your terminals. Out there in the optimizing shell experience, we have another article about um, configuring a light-colored theme and, because the default um, color choices, uh, the contrast doesn't always work if you're using a, a, a light background, like a white background instead of a dark background. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, one reason background. You one reason you might want to use a light background is if you're doing a presentation, because a lot of times it's difficult to see the dark backgrounds. That's true. Uh, I, that's the only time I ever do light. Otherwise, it feels like, or if I'm doing like uh, some kind of broadcasty type thing, because it kind of helps to have like a white light, have your screen turn into a white light for you. I have a question. Yes. So I see there's a new PDF feature. What is this all about? Yeah. So this. Um... I meant to mention this in the uh, recent um, community call, uh, but forgot about it. But this is a new platform feature. Um, we've had the download PDF feature on our docs pages uh, for quite a long time, but it never worked for reference content sets. So we did, didn't have that available in the PowerShell docs. Well. They have fixed that now. And so 
Um, you can click on the download PDF button and depending what page you're viewing at the time, um, it, it'll download different things. So if you're viewing, if you're looking at our table of contents, um, you'll notice uh, there's a dividing line between um, the items, uh, you know, the first set of items, and then at the bottom, the reference item in the table of contents. So everything above reference, above that dividing line, is what we call conceptual documentation. Uh, and everything below the line is the reference documentation. So if you're viewing a conceptual article, when you click download PDF, it will download a PDF that is um, all of the conceptual documentation. Um, and that file, uh, I downloaded one here recently. Um, it's like 85 megabytes. 3,388 pages? Yeah. Casual reading. And, and then uh, if you are selected, say, on a commandlet reference, um, then it downloads all of the commandlet reference, all the reference content for the selected version. So if you're on PowerShell 7.3, you'll get the 7.3 content. If you're on PowerShell 5.1, you'll get the 5.1 content and so on. Okay. That makes sense. So in the top left, there's a little version dropdown. You select which, what version you're on, and then it'll download the relevant PDF for that. Yeah. And this is, this is a feature that uh, people have been asking for for years now. Um, and I'm sort of of two minds. I think it's a cool feature, uh, but I also think that, uh, you know, a static PDF can go stale on you, and um, it, it wasn't our intent. Our intent is the website has the latest, greatest documentation, and that's where you should be going. But I understand people want something that's a little more portable. They can take with them offline scenarios. Maybe mark it up or something like that, too. Yeah. As far as the content going stale, you know, with PowerShell, you may say, well, there's only so many versions. But if you look at, at Azure PowerShell, we release every month. So we have a minor version every single month, 10 times a year. And then twice a year, we have breaking change versions. So they're major revisions. So it can go stale in a month is, is my point. Yeah, I definitely want to check things out online. And in fact, shout out to get help dash online. Shout out to that parameter, putting in work as always. I do want to let you know that I kind of forgot, you know, I figured, oh, you know, docs, keep them up to date. I've totally forgot that you have to keep multiple different versions, right? Or, or support docs for different versions of PowerShell. Right. It's like an added layer of complexity that I was like, I wasn't thinking of, but apparently you all were. Yeah. In addition to the multiple versions, so Azure PowerShell works a little bit differently. So our, our reference documentation originates in our source repo. So it's auto-generated. But then that is, when we release a version, that's more or less like copied to the docs repo. So if I want to update a current something, a problem, let's say in the current version, I have to go update the version in the docs repo. But then if I want to prevent the problem from occurring in future versions, I have to go update the version in the source repo. And then if I want to update every version, there's three to four versions in the docs repo and the source version. 
So you have numerous versions. In diff- numerous ver- versions in different repos. So yeah, yes. it's, it's a little more complicated. <laughs> so would it be possible to have like a, a script or module that just go and it would say you want to update a certain thing in GitHub, it goes and finds for you there are this many versions and you can just kind of start pushing that out, I guess, more dynamically, or is it always just going to be a one-to-one process? You can't always just copy the doc because maybe other things have changed in the doc between the versions. Maybe a parameter was added, so you can't just copy the new one to the old one. But we use a tool beyond compare. And I think there's also an open source tool called Mailed that you could use that compares the changes and you can easily merge the changes from one file to the other. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah, and uh, Visual Studio Code has a diff mode like that now too. So you can bring up uh, two versions uh, in, from two different folders um, of the same article side by side in in comparison mode and copy uh, changes from one file to the other. Selectively copy what you want from one to the other with a just a single click. And so there are some ways, but this does feel like an automation nightmare. It's a- yeah, it's 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 a very manual process. Uh, what I do have is I have a helper script that I run where I can, um, I call it BC sync for uh, beyond compare synchronize. And uh, I give it the path to one article and the script goes out and sees, uh, finds that article and all the other different version folders and it brings them up one at a time side by side. And so uh, I, I copy the, the necessary changes from one to the other. Uh, I exit, and then it opens up again with the next version compared side by side. And it just repeats that um, until I've covered all of the versions. So it, yeah. it makes it a little bit easier, but it's still a manual process. You have to, it, it takes a human to understand the context of what needs to be copied from one version to another. Yeah, in addition to the docs, I mean, just think of the product. It's almost like a paradox because you have all this cross-platform versions, but then you, now you're getting into like AMD 64 and ARM 64 versions. Because recently I started, I, personally, I've been using a Mac for a couple of years, but I bought a new MacBook and I pulled down our Docker container. And of course, it's got Apple Silicon. So it pulled down the X64 version and it appeared to work until I ran a command and then it just kind of blew up. And I grabbed the latest Docker image. Well, we, a couple of versions ago, I believe with 9, 9.6.0 of Azure PowerShell, we've started publishing ARM64 versions of our Docker container. So I needed to grab that version. And it allowed me to determine without anybody reporting it that, hey, our docs were wrong. So yesterday I updated the docs, so now it have a, has a tab for AMD64 and ARM64 to make sure you get the right Docker container. So I'm going to go on a limb and say attention to detail is something you guys check for really thoroughly when hiring. <laughs> yep. Gosh. <laughs> so, Mike. How's the blog been, man? How's the personal blog? We're taking a break from the professional. How's, how's the PowerShell blog been, man? Like so I need to get, Yeah, I need to get back to the blog. Uh, I've actually had several people reach out to me, even at the summit. It's like, hey, uh, you know, we've read your stuff. We love it. So that, that kind of gives me, you know, it, 
it gives me motivation to get out there and, and work on the blog. And some of this, this um, the different things with, with uh, Macs and Linux that I'm working with is stuff I want to blog because one thing, it's like I thought to myself, hey, I'm really going to miss Windows Terminal on the Mac. But then I figured out with Parallels, you can uh, you can actually run Windows Terminal and you can run it like in the foreground without having a VM like it, it's booted up, but the VM's in the background. So you can run it and it looks like you're running Windows Terminal on the Mac, even though it's it kind of reminds me if you remember years ago when Windows 7 released, there was an XP mode. And XP was technically running on a VM in the background, even though you could have foreground apps. Wow. So I'm about to get on that Mac bandwagon here in the next uh, couple of weeks, hopefully, with my work computer. And it sounds like, so you're using Parallels to run Terminal. Did you, you like Terminal more or what was the problem with the other terminals? I, I do like the Terminal. Now I'm also using iTerm2. Because one thing, the the original reason two years ago that I bought a Mac Mini, and I just bought the cheapest version, but I bought it to test my documentation, or at least that was my excuse to get into the ecosystem. Because if we're telling our customers that, hey, this, this uh, documentation or this product is cross-platform, and we're writing docs for it, we need to make sure that it actually does work. Because if you write, say, Mac documentation, and you tell a customer, press the enter key, well, you, the customer who uses a Mac is going to know that that wasn't written by a Mac user because Mac keyboards don't have an enter key. They have a return key. So just little detail, like you said before, attention to detail. Um, so you can also run, run like Ubuntu and Fedora, and those are ARM versions within Parallels. And Parallels just makes it like super easy to run. Um, but And it's to me, it's not about... Windows, Mac, or Linux. What I was really looking for, I want a universal computer. I don't want to have to have all these different pieces of hardware. I want one computer that I can run Mac OS, Linux, Windows, I can do everything on. And even in addition to all that, you know, you don't want to blow away your your bare metal OS every time you want to test something. So the, the Mac hardware is the only place you can run Mac OS, but Parallels also allows you to run a virtual Mac OS. So that way, if you want to run through documentation on a plain vanilla machine that's Mac, you can spin one up instead of having to reset your, your bare metal one. So that's the sort of things you're going to see on my blog, you know, in the future, uh, just to kind of answer your question. And I haven't blogged recently, but there are about 300 blog articles. And of course, I've written some books too. And one thing just to kind of circle back, when I started writing documentation for Azure PowerShell, one thing I learned is that customers didn't really know how to use PowerShell. And I like to use the analogy, they wanted to uh, build a house without learning how to use a hammer. So it's like, hey, I need to uh, empower them to use PowerShell so that they can configure their resources in Azure. So I decided to donate my PowerShell 101 book to Microsoft because it was already written in Markdown. And and uh, Sean actually went through and did some edits on that, integrated it into the PowerShell documentation. And at the point in time, I also made the book freely available on LeanPub. And one thing I'll say is watch that space. 
so that book has over 26,000 readers, not counting the views on the Microsoft website. And I'm actually, I'm rewriting that book for PowerShell 7. And I'm going to publish it. I'm not publishing a new book because it's still going to be open source. I'm going to update the existing book. So everybody who has the book already will get the new book. Nice. Very cool. I'll have to make sure I'm recommending that link whenever people are looking for PowerShell 101 content. Yeah, that's uh, in the main PowerShell doc set in the table of contents under learning PowerShell. That's the first entry there is is Mike's book. And um, we really appreciate his donation here. Um, it, you know, we're, we're also trying to create learn modules or training modules that's part of the, the Microsoft Learn platform. Um, but the process of creating those is uh, much more difficult um, and much more constrained. And we just haven't had the time to focus on it. So there's not a lot of, um, there's a lot of Azure PowerShell training modules, but not a lot of just core PowerShell training modules. Um, out on learn so the powershell 101 is is really uh probably the best place to start slight pivot here but i want to mention something that i just discovered about powershell um recently security wise and uh, we don't have to get into too much detail with it but in powershell 7.2 so this is a little older news but there was there's now a software bill of materials yes Did you all know that i, I didn't know that yeah, that's actually um, by executive order from the president yeah. of the United States. Um, software that is sold to or used by the government has to have this software bill of materials. Um, and so all of our, uh, everything that the PowerShell team publishes uh, has to include that. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a manifest uh, that has digital signatures for all of the components that uh, we ship. Yeah, very cool. And that's at dollar sign PS home slash underscore manifest. And there's some other stuff after that. I won't read the whole path, but yeah, another good Microsoft Learn article. I probably need to go through these and make sure I'm familiar with all the good articles that are there. Because um, I think there's like, go ahead. Also circling back to what Sean was saying about the uh, the training modules. So I've recently worked with with our our broader team because we work on the same team as the the writers for Terraform and Bicep and Azure CLI. But I worked on that broader team to come up with a training module that helps our customer choo customers choose the best Azure command line tool for managing their cloud infrastructure. So it talks about infrastructure as code, it talks about imperative, declarative, and it shows the same example of, of um, creating a storage account. And it shows you how to do that in each tool so you can see the differences in the syntax. And it helps you make choices. Maybe you're multi-cloud. Well, if you're multi-cloud and you're choosing between Bicep and Terraform, of course, you're going to use Terraform because you can only use Bicep and Azure. So it helps customers just getting started, figure out what tools would be the best fit for them. So just a random thought here. It's a complex world out there. There's a lot of Microsoft products. They do a lot of different things. 
And oftentimes, thinking back to when I was an admin, I would not always know the right direction, the right approach. How do they want us to use this new technology? There's so many options. And uh, advice and kind of a conclusion that I always keep coming back to is it really helps to go read the documentation, right? What documentation, from my perspective, allows is you can kind of show us the direction we should go. You can show us how we should use these features. And we're talking about PowerShell and Azure, but you can show us how we could approach this rather than just looking at uh, all the technical details of a particular technology and being like, oh, how do I put all this together? Well, check out the Microsoft Docs. Now, learn.microsoft.com. A little plug there. Yeah, and uh, I also wanted to point out some other recent changes in the docs. Um, Actually, if you go to, at the, at the top of our table of contents, we have this article, How to Use This Documentation. And I recently updated this. And it, uh, the first animated screenshot there shows you the different um, components of our docs page. Um, and so when you're looking at our docs page, you know, the, the top bar there is the Microsoft Learn bar. That's, that gets you to, uh, links you to all kinds of other areas in the Microsoft Learn site. Um, below that is the PowerShell navigation bar, and that, that links to uh, other related PowerShell content. Um, and uh, one, one that I wanted to point out is we recently moved um, the PowerShell gallery and PowerShell get documentation out into its own doc set. And that's uh, link to there on the uh, the level two navigation bar, and uh, you'll see there now we have uh, a version picker for PowerShell Get, so you can switch between version one, which is the version that ships in Windows PowerShell 5.1, version two, which is the current supported version, and then version three, which is the new preview version. Um, and we'll be updating the, you know, that documentation for PowerShell three uh, uh, as new releases come out and and we get closer to uh, GA. Um, but if you're looking for that documentation, uh, you won't find it in the main doc set. We had to split it out so that we could uh, better manage it by version. Um, we'll make sure we get a link to that, especially where I'm. I'm watching the cycle through all the different sections now. It's pretty useful. There's more components in there you might expect. So we'll get a link so people can go and they can see and dive yeah. in. Easier. And I also, I think this is an underutilized feature in the level two navigation there is the module browser. And in the module browser, you can go in and this helps you find commandlets and modules that we have published and documented. And you can search by... Uh, you could search by nouns. So if you know you're looking for a commandlet that works with certificates, you could just type in, start typing in certificate, and you'll get a whole list. And in, instead of trying to know what module it's in and um, you know where to find that documentation. Now, Jordan, have you thought about how we want to handle this? I was thinking just two favorite modules each. We've already put them through the ringer once. <laughs> we have. The other option is is we have three questions and three guests, and they could fight over who gets the easy one. There's no easy one. Excuse me. 
before we do that, can I give a quick PSA of a hard lesson learned by me? Actually, maybe I'll take question one of a mistake you've made and how did you handle it? What did you learn? Uh, I, I built a script for, I was trying to clean up Apex packages and I had a allow list of what I wanted to keep. And I didn't realize that Windows Terminal is actually an Apex package. And I tested <laughs> it on my personal machine and I deleted Terminal from my own machine. And, <laughs> and so what, what I learned is I uh, use my lab when I'm testing my scripts, I guess. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one to learn. So one one last thing I would like to plug. So uh, on July 29th, there's a SQL Saturday in Baton Rouge, and there's going to be a PowerShell track, and I'll be there. I think Sean may be there. But we started this out talking about birthdays. And so me and Sean actually share the same birthday. And you can come help us celebrate our, our birthdays at SQL Saturday in Baton Rouge. And I won't tell you exactly what day our birthdays are on because I'm not sure that Sean wants to disclose that. But it's around the same time as SQL Saturday in Baton Rouge. The other thing is uh, there's going to be a PowerShell on the river the second weekend in August. And it's, uh, I believe, a Friday, Friday, Saturday event. Fridays are pre-cons. Me and Sean hope to be presenting sessions there if they're approved. So. We during this podcast we talked about Markdown and, and Git and GitHub and Docs, and we hope to be presenting sessions that are going to be a little more deep dive into some of those topics. Very cool. I hope to see you there. I'm working on wheeling and dealing my way to get there. We we do that a lot for a lot of these uh, summits, <laughs> and they're always pushing. So we will also we'll, we'll include a link to the SQL Saturday. Uh, so anyone that's interested in that, they can go and sign up or see if they want to go for that one. And then as well as the PowerShell on the river, I know that's one that, that uh, it's, it's a, it, I think you said two days, so it's a little bit shorter event, but there's a lot of value packed into it from, I understand, you've never been able to go. And PowerShell on the river, I mean, there is a cost for it, but it's fairly low budget. Uh, SQL Saturday in Baton Rouge is a free event, and they also provide lunch. And they provide jambalaya every year. I go every year just for the jambalaya. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan, let me get the second question because I have a custom tailored question for Mikey. Okay. Mikey, what is an open source project that you recently stumbled across that could use a boost in documentation that you so took it upon yourself to uh, to totally revamp and improve? Yeah. Uh... It's funny that you ask that. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, we've been starting to use a bunch of different open source tools in our workflows, right? Just stuff to make things easier on us. For those who aren't familiar with uh, the GitHub command line, that's great, and you should use that. Uh, they actually have a docs team, so they have pretty extensive docs. Um, what doesn't usually have extensive documentation, though, if it has any at all, are extensions for the GitHub command line. So uh, you can author these little extensions and then you run gh extension install and then whatever the URL is for uh, where that is on GitHub and uh, it adds it. And then you can use that extension as a subcommand. So one that Sean and I use extensively is uh, the GitHub dashboard, um, which when you install it, you type gh dash and hit enter and it pulls up a dashboard of issues and pull requests. So we both use this to check on repositories and see what issues have come in, what pull requests are there, what needs my attention. 
what am I just tracking? Cause I'm curious about it, those kinds of things. Um, and we have coworkers who have a really big backlog of issues and they struggle to kind of get their heads around which of these are actually important. What's assigned to me? How do I use it? And they're not uh, primarily open source developers. They're documentarians who happen to be working in an open source way. Um, and so sending them to the docs for building GitHub search syntax and being like, yeah, and here's all the other stuff you can do, that starts to get harder and harder. And then you have to remember all of those or like I do every time, look it up. Uh, and that's really tough. So I was like, I want to tell coworkers about GH Dash. Uh, but then I remembered that uh, they're not developers and saying, well, read the readme and then check the code to see how it's implemented so you're sure about what it's going to do. Not a good answer. Pretty terrible answer for any open source software. Um, so I filed an issue uh, with the maintainer. I was like, hey, you should have a docs site that explains how to configure this thing and what happens when you're in the UI. Because it, it the way that it presents, I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, when you run GH dash, it builds a uh, text user interface in your console, in, in, in your terminal, that displays all that information for you. Um, I was like, you should explain what these things are and, and have documentation for what the commands do beyond uh, when you're in the dashboard, if you hit the uh, question mark key on your keyboard, it pulls up a little list of the available commands. And it just says what the command name is and what the key to activate that command is. So here's the thing that I didn't know till I decided that somebody had to write the docs and no one was stepping up, so I'll do it. Um, it has a feature for being able to merge a PR from the dashboard. That's really cool, right? Like I can I can say, yeah, I have, I've approved it. I'm going to go ahead and merge it. There's no confirmation prompt. If you if you are uh, if your cursor if you have selected a PR in the dashboard and you hit the M key on your keyboard, it'll merge that right now as it is. So you don't want to oopsie with your fingers or you'll start merging PRs. And this is a text UI where you're like clicking in your console. So it's yeah, already... your, your keyboard navigating around in your console. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and it's, it's an easy mistake to make. And so I filed the issue and I was like, I'm going to take a stab at this. Uh, and the maintainer replied to me and was like, well, what would you document? And I had to step away from the computer for a second because like, my reflexive answer was the software. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of it. The, the, the tool, the thing you made. Uh, so I, I had to come back and be like, you know, because the readme doesn't really talk about the commands at all. It says that they're there and like mentions that you can do these things but not how they work or what they're doing behind the scenes or any of that. And then the configuration, to me, it was very clear that as the maintainer was adding features, they were also writing down some notes about how those features worked. And that was the only documentation that shipped. Uh, so in a ADHD haze over a weekend, I went through the source code uh, and the existing readme and pulled together um, JSON schema for the entirety of the configuration options. Uh, and I have some side projects, one of which takes a uh, schema that you define in, in YAML or JSON with some extra keys for documentation 
generates uh, documentation pages, throws away the keys that were used for uh, building the documentation, and then publishes the JSON schema in a way that your editor can pick up. So after this uh, documentation effort, now that it's merged, um, you can add a uh, magic comment to the top of your uh, YAML files uh, or indicate the uh, with the dollar schema key at the top of your JSON files. Um, and you'll get IntelliSense, you'll get hover help, you'll get validation for the configuration options for GH-Dash now. Um, so part of it was just, I needed to do this so that I could talk to other people about it. <laughs> I was like, I want to I want to recommend you use it, but I can't recommend you use it in the current state. Uh, and then part of it was also uh, a personal experiment for like, can we do schema documentation better? Uh, and it seems clear to me that you can. Uh, I think I've settled on a way to do that. So this is, it's, it's a weird area because you're not exactly taking work home because you're just doing your full-time job in something else now. <laughs> yeah, which was always true, you know, back when I was in uh, ops and I was primarily writing scripts and when I was a, a open source developer full-time, uh, a lot of my side project work is I encountered a frustration during the day and I'm going to go and make that frustration disappear over the weekend. Uh, and hopefully they take it. And there was, I had some real concerns that the maintainer would be like, this is too much and I don't know what to do with it. I'm not going to accept it. And a friend of mine was, had mentioned that was like, what if they reject it? And I was like, well, then I'll fork it and I'll call it GH Dasher and I'll give it a reindeer as an icon. Uh, <laughs> and it'll be the exact same code, but with docs. <laughs> it'll just be a documented fork. I won't change any of the functionality. <laughs> nice. Well, we'll have a link to GH Dash in the show notes as well. And you can check out the documentation, learn a thing or two. And if you find problems in the docs, let me know. I'll fix them. So for, for our listeners, we always have a couple of documents, links that we include three or four, but we've been talking to three people that documentation is their business. So there, there's a lot of great documentation we've got for this time that you might want to take cycle through. If you're interested on any point where they talked about, we have the documentation for it ready to go. So. Hickory dickory docs. We got them all. <laughs> I think, are we going to count that as the common parameters? I think. I think so. We covered right. a lot. Well, you guys are all return guests. So you are aware of what time it is and it's a magical time in everyone's life. Uh, honestly, having three legends here to celebrate my birthday with me has been great, but no honor is greater than having Andrew live shill this podcast and i get to be front row take it away andrew thank you you know what jordan this morning i woke up i said let's do something different today let's just sing awkwardly the entire happy birthday song for everyone to hear i, no, I decided against it <laughs> we should all awkwardly out of sync sing uh no no thank you jordan <laughs> Happy birthday to you, man. What what a celebration. We covered some great stuff. I learned new things. I was reading along to docs as we were talking about the different docs and like kept on discovering new things this whole episode. So definitely check out our show notes. There's some amazing stuff. And listen, if you're still listening, I'm still talking. I'm still shilling. We're still here. Like, comment, subscribe. Give us a five-star review. If you're on Apple Podcasts, write something. We love reading comments. Um, if you're on the YouTube comments, say what's up. 
you can email us. You got questions you want to reach out, PowerShell at pdq.com. I'm on the internet at Andrew Plotek. He's at DevOps Jordan. Um, Jordan, am I missing some other plug that I need to do? You give the email, right? PowerShell at pdq.com. Yeah, we're good there, man. Hey, I'll up. be honest, I wasn't listening to you. Hey, you were just wowed. I, I feel that. <laughs> now, we'll start from order to top right and go around, but where can we find you all on the internet? Sean. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm SD Wheeler at uh, uh, GitHub and um, Fostodon. Th- those are probably the two best places to start. Perfect. Mike, uh, what's the GitHub for you? Uh, the GitHub for me is Michael T. Lombardi. It's uh, where all of my side projects sit. Well, yeah, 2,412 contributions a year. <laughs> a yeah, a few. Uh, a lot of my numbers for this last month are inhuman because GitHub attributed all of the PRs I merged from the Docathon and all of the commits in those PRs to me, which is not how numbers should work. Was like, Congrats you, on you your did, excellent month. It's like, you did 260 commits this week. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the corporate America, you take all the victory. Everyone else's work. Yeah, on top. Mike, where can we find you? You can always find me on micaprovins.com. That's probably the best place to find everything. It's got links to uh, to Twitter. I need to add my uh, Fostodon account, but it's micaprovins. I mean, just... Uh, I try to sign up for everything with that handle because I'm a big believer in personal branding. So pretty much anywhere you can find me at Micah Robbins. So I have noticed you have that everywhere. So if a new service comes up and you're not even sure if you're going to be using that, do you still go in and just register to get Micah Robbins early? Or is I it do. something you just hope? Oh, that's, I have that's like, well played. I have accounts that I've signed up for. I've never used, but uh, I own the, uh, the account. That's the way to go about it. Nice. Well, Jordan, fantastic birthday, fantastic celebration with some fantastic guests, with some fantastic docs for another amazing episode of the PowerShell Podcast. Thanks so much for talking to us, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Two kinds of flavor, two kinds of crunch. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com, making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick.